0: BIV today the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and biv.com I'm Tyler Orton This week the 4th annual BC Tech Summit managed to draw about 7000 delegates over 3 days Investors entrepreneurs executives they all converge at the Vancouver Convention Center to delve into everything from artificial intelligence to 5G networks We also saw a huge showcase for technologies coming out of British Columbia, ranging from robots to virtual reality. And I had the chance to moderate a fascinating panel on how quantum computing will change our lives in the coming years. We're going to jump right into it with the panel and get the experts to introduce themselves before diving into everything from real world applications to how jobs will be affected by this leap in technology. Let's get on with it.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Brianna. I'm 15 years old and I've been interning at Xanadu. They're a photonic quantum computing company in Toronto. There I got to develop documentation for their quantum simulator named Strawberry Fields. And I also got to try to create quantum machine learning models. Before that, I went to the world's first quantum computing hackathon at Rigetti, And there I got to implement uh, a quantum chemistry algorithm to then create new drugs in the future. Since then, I've been super interested in the space and working on projects.
0: Excellent. Liz, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself.
1: Sure. So I'm Liz Parnell. I work for Fujitsu
2: as the head of business integration. So I'm responsible for strategy, operations, governance, and our corporate social responsibility program. Um, I'm also the mother of three uh, university-age kids and I wish I could get them to spell some of the (laughs) stuff you said, let alone do it. So I'm super excited to be here. It's my first time in Vancouver, beautiful city. And uh, what I'm really hoping that you get out of this is, you know, we spark your curiosity and some passion around this topic because it is really cool stuff.
0: Uh, Murray, you're uh, along with me, one of the locals uh, that's featured (laughs) here on this panel and a very notable local company that's involved here. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Yeah, so uh, hi, everyone. My name is Murray Tom. I'm the vice president of software and cloud services at D-Wave Systems. D-Wave is the quantum computing company that's located in Burnaby, BC. Um, I've been with the company a little over 16 years. The company's 20 years old now and um, I would say sort of in that during that 16 years I've kind of had three phases to my career. The first phase was about whether we could even build quantum computers. Uh, the second phase of my career was going out and working with customers uh, and talking to them about what problems quantum computers solve and helping them to write software for quantum computers. The third phase of my career now is about providing access to quantum computers and making them easier to um, work with and write applications for. So uh, The company is really focused on unlocking the power of quantum computing for the world today. And that means for all of you, Uh, I'm hoping to share some of that with you uh, during our discussion today.
0: And I think like everybody in the audience might have like different conceptions of maybe what quantum computing means to them. And with regards to our panelists, I probably think that applies to you guys as well. So why don't we kind of kick that off and then just go down the row. Brianna, what does quantum computing like mean to you?
1: Yeah, I really see it as this new technology that will, make, that will be making significant impact in various industries in the next couple of decades. In the next couple of years, we're gonna hit a physical limit of the number of transistors we can actually fit on a computer chip. And what that means is that we're going to hit a limit of the amount of computational power we have. And I see quantum computing as one of those technologies that will allow us to exceed that limit to then continue to be able solving really difficult problems that we're gonna be facing in the next couple of decades there's that aspect of it being a technology that will allow us to solve really difficult problems, but it's also just the intersection of like information theory, probability theory, and quantum mechanics, which is a really interesting mix. And that's, that's an area that we haven't really been able to like integrate and create a technology out of, and now quantum computing is the product of those couple of fields, which is really exciting.
0: For you, Liz? I mean, you're taking at it like kind of a different angle as well. So I'm curious if you can kind of uh, address that same question.
2: Sure. No, thank you. So to me, there's kind of threefold. So there's the implication of what quantum, what the results of quantum computing can bring. So Fujitsu is very committed to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And that's really around there are sort of, um, you know, set in 2015 goals about how do we do things like, you know, stabilize our food supply, make sure that we have sustainable cities, uh, we, we have, you know, clean air, clean water, things like that, employment. Um, and so quantum can help us solve some of the world's biggest problems if we use it wisely. Um, I think for Fujitsu, our customers already have billions, trillions of dollars invested in classical computing, and it's how do we start to bridge that gap between classical and quantum, and be able to kind of sweat the assets that people have already invested in, but also bring them into the future power that we have. So we're looking at that. And then lastly, again, going back to the future around careers, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about STEM, right? We talk about science, technology, engineering, math super important, but I think quantum is gonna actually have a new dawn for philosophy and ethics and game theory and art because so much about quantum is how do you combine those two? So to me, it's, it opens up a a little bit of a Pandora's box around those three things.
0: Now, Murray, I did the quick math in my head, did not require quantum computing, but you've been at D-Wave longer than Brianna's been alive. (laughs) So tell me, as one of these pioneers, how do you approach that same question? What does quantum computing mean to you?
3: Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, as uh, this is what an old-timer in quantum computing looks like, uh, I'm really thinking about it in terms of, like, you know, what does quantum computing mean for the world? And uh, we're at this stage now, you know, D-Wave just released um, a quantum application environment last year, uh, which is open for signups, which means that uh, everyone can get immediate access to a quantum computer. And we also have put our developer tools out in open source so that people can begin developing their applications that way, which means that we've entered the era of the quantum application and the quantum developer. And and that's really about, in my mind, what the the future is going to be, this growth in our economy, an entirely new sector, which is about uh, applying quantum computing technology to different applications. And just to give you a a bit of a taste of that, um, when D-Wave came out with its second uh, quantum computing product, the relative performance improvement of that D-Wave 2 over the D-Wave 1, its first product, was 10,000 times. You know, so if we think about like the, the things that we do in our lives routinely, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad, I've got two young kids at home, so if you imagine preparing dinner for your family, or like cleaning up the kitchen at the end of the day, you know, imagine if you could take a task that takes 10 minutes down to a tenth of a second. If you could do it 10,000 times faster than the way you're doing it, how, how that would fundamentally change your life. That's the notion with quantum computing is that there are certain computational tasks that are going to go from taking us 10 minutes to a tenth of a second you know, or or some other timescale. So um, that is sort of opening up this industry of discovery of like, well, where are we going to apply it? And I think people might be surprised to learn that you don't need to be a quantum physicist to program a quantum computer. And I'm hoping during our discussion today, we can talk about how, you know, customers and researchers at universities and engineers at companies have actually begun um, developing applications on quantum computers for these open source codes and they're publishing the results so that you can actually see uh, how accessible it is and, and how real world the problems that they're, they're approaching.
0: Well why don't we jump into it then uh, Murray because of course what D-Wave is doing is making this technology accessible to you know groups, organizations, companies in a way that has not been accessible before. Tell us some of the applications that you're witnessing, some of the stuff that you think can really make a difference moving forward.
3: Yeah absolutely so I mean I would say that part of the reason why my role at D-Wave moved from engineering closer to customers and closer to like making the systems easier to program is that that's what's most exciting about quantum computing I mean I'm a nerd right I'm a self-professed dweeb I really like high technology things but I'm most excited about what people are going to be using it for Um, so for instance like Volkswagen has been working with us on preparing a traffic flow optimization platform they're going to be working with the telecommunications company Orange and the data analytics company Teralytics uh, to basically make um, a, a sort of a taxi recommender for people who are going to be uh, in Barcelona and they want to demo that later this year at the uh, the web summit in, in Lisbon. Um, so that would be one example of a class of optimization problems that we've seen. Uh, we've also seen that company uh, Recruit Communications in Japan is working on hotel recommender systems on your phone. So when you're going to, uh, you know, book a hotel that's going to be in Tokyo and you you might prefer to have um, a hotel in a particular district, Um, they're actually going to use quantum computing technologies to help with that optimization task. Um, And those are great because I feel like they're tangible real world optimization questions, but there's also these real world examples like um, Daryl Nazareth from the Roswell Cancer Institute has looked at optimizing um, cancer radiation therapy programs. Um, for individualized treatment of, of different cancer patients and, and I would be feel like my entire life 's work would, would have so much meaning if those types of applications came to fruition and that really requires depending on developers and innovators out in the world uh, to take the technology and find the places where they see it suiting best because we don 't have the kind of domain expertise that you do right mm-hmm. and, uh, and that 's what it 's exciting it 's not going to be about a few quantum devices or one quantum computer it 's going to be about an entirely new quantum computing industry which is going to be led by um, the smart people who are outside of D-Wave uh, finding it, putting
0: it in application
2: yeah
0: well uh, maybe some smart people outside of D-Wave are uh, right here with us too. Uh, Liz what is Fujitsu uh, pursuing at this
2: point? Yeah so Fujitsu has a technology which is a sort of quantum-like, uh, quantum inspired uh, called Digital Annealer and again we're using that to kind of solve real-world problems today working with Automotive and manufacturing companies to optimize production. We've been working with companies to optimize their routes, so so what is the best route possible? Um, Working with banks, NatWest, looking at their liquid asset portfolio, trying to figure out how we can get the best out of that. So we're trying to use, you know, real live customer examples. Um, But then kind of going back to my favorite SDG topic, we're also looking at things like how do you kind of optimize crop stability? How do you optimize Um, things like that where, you know, we've got, we can see, you know, certain things under threat and how uh, disaster recovery items like that. So we're kind of using our technologies as well and we're doing a lot of partnerships with universities in Toronto, with, with yourselves, with um, one qubit to kind of, uh, because we know that it's going to take an ecosystem. It's not just one company that's going to crack the code here.
0: And Brianna, I was thinking about it before we came into this panel. Back when I was in high school, uh, I was doing experiments on computers with like Fruit flies and like (laughs) orbiting planets, and that's about the extent of it that we could do at the max. Tell me a little bit. How did you get into this? And then tell me a little bit about you know what you're doing with these internships and how you're pursuing a lot of these real world applications that are solving problems.
1: Yeah. So just to answer your first question, I think it really started off with just a curiosity about the world. Like as a kid, I really enjoyed asking like random questions about the most random things, and that always led to like a rabbit hole on Google. So I remember I walked into the bathroom one day and I turned on the lights. I was like 10 years old at the time. And when I turned on the lights, I was like, what is light? Like, what even is light? Like, what is this? Is it like a physical thing? Like, what am I looking at right now? So it always came down to these like fundamental questions that I would just ask you about the universe. And that got me learning about like photonics after a couple of months from then, I watched a documentary on quantum field theory. And I was like, whoa, this like doesn't make any sense. Like our our classical world doesn't work like this, but the quantum mechanical world works in a completely different, like almost unintuitive way. And so that just got me really interested because like normally for classical physics, there's a, we can, we can define everything by math equations, but for, and for quantum mechanics, the math also computes, but from how we think about things from a logical perspective, it just doesn't make any sense. And so this idea of things not making sense to me was really the aspect that got me interested in, into quantum mechanics. And then I started learning about quantum cryptography, which is a completely different way of creating cryptographic cryptographic systems that use quantum mechanics to become super secure, or theoretically unhackable, actually. Um, and I got interested in quantum computing, and my first experience that really changed the way I thought about quantum computing, where I came from being super interested in the science point of view, and I and then I realized, oh, this is a technology that can actually be applied to, like, Almost every single industry was when I went to the world's first quantum computing hackathon at Rigetti. They're a lead quantum computing company in Berkeley. And there I got to work on an algorithm that will actually help us discover new drugs in the future. It's called a variational quantum eigensolver. And at a high level, what it does is it simulates the energy levels of a molecule. Um, We take that simulation, which is done on a quantum device take those energy levels, put it on a classical device, and do machine learning on it to actually optimize the molecular structure of that molecule. And using this algorithm and a bunch of other quantum chemistry algorithms that people are developing right now, we're thinking of actually taking drug discovery and having quantum computers help us um, make sure that discovering drugs will be a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the time. Because today, it takes 10 years to get a drug from the lab to the market. And $2.6 billion, which is kind of insane to think about, so that was one of the first applications that really got me thinking about how impactful this technology really is. And another area that I worked on at Xanadu was quantum machine learning, where we can take um, really difficult tasks that are, in w- that are in machine learning right now, such as like difficult, um, computing a very, very difficult cost function. We take this super difficult machine learning task, we can put it on a quantum device, take the other half of that machine learning problem, put it on a classical computer, and here you see the integration of like artificial intelligence and quantum computing, where both fields are actually helping each other advance and become better, which got me super fascinated. And I got to work on some quantum machine learning models at Xanadu, which is a lot of fun and also just a completely different way of thinking about this field of quantum computing.
0: So I'm curious. I mean, the question here is, how will quantum computing change our lives? And I wonder if there are efforts that we need to do to help, you know, organizations embrace this sort of stuff. Uh, Liz, what do you think, like what can we do to help facilitate, I guess, this upcoming change that we're already in the midst of at this point?
2: Sure. I think a lot of it, again, will always come back to people and it comes back to how we work with our customers, how we work with the people around us to understand what the issues are, how we can guide you sort of through those solutions. If we think about it, as this technology becomes prevalent, our human experience is going to change and that's going to change our expectations. So if I, we were just joking around before this, you know, if I think about how I wanted to order something 20 years ago, I got out my catalog, wrote a check, sent it off, hoped for the best. Um, my kids ordered something this weekend from Amazon and it was at our house in about an hour. Their expectation is that something they want arrives in an hour soon their expectation will be that when something they want can get 3D printed three seconds later, that that is the norm. And so as our experiences and our expectations change, we have to start changing the way that we do business, the way that we interact with our customers, back to science and medicine. You know, what is your expectation when you are diagnosed with a disease? Is that it is cured and modified within a matter of minutes and hours versus years of struggle. So, so what we have to start to do now is think differently, approach problems differently. And really start to work together, bringing in, I kind of mentioned the ecosystem earlier of lots of different experts to help us kind of create these questions and these solutions and these answers going forward. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, but that was sort of the, where I'm thinking it's going. Not, totally. And,
0: and from your perspective, Murray, you're dealing with a lot of these organizations. I think the ones coming to see you guys are the ones that you're working with. They may be quicker to embrace it. But how do we approach this question about, I guess, you know, the, the world at large about this embrace that I think everybody's going to have to catch up to.
3: Yes, well, it's, uh, it was making me think here about a quote, I, unfortunately I can't remember who uh, originated the quote, but it was uh, any technology that's sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. And uh, the notion here is that um, there's a lot about quantum mechanics and quantum computing which is very strange. So we were talking earlier about you know, the limit of our computational information processing right? and I was talking about the relative performance differences between two generations of quantum computers. One of the things that uh, you might not realize is that the processors that are doing this information processing, they consume a 10th of a billionth of a watt. So they're made out of metals that when cooled down to these low temperatures, don't have any resistance whatsoever. So they don't need to dissipate energy to do these calculations. So this fundamental relationship we see between we have big compute problems and we need enormous power plants in order to basically keep the computers running is going to get changed when it comes to solving these problems which are enormously difficult for classical computers. Um, The other thing that's, I think, worth identifying is although I'm a technologist and I've been working in computing for a long time, I've talked to a lot of people who work in high-performance computing, I don't really know at a very detailed level, level how Intel chips work you know, I know there's a switch in there, it flips on, it flips off, you know, binary information is transmitted there, but a lot of that is getting handled for me by experts. And I know like very high-level programming languages like Python when it comes to getting problems solved. For many of us, that's what quantum computing is going to be like as well, where the low-level technology of what's actually taking place is sort of going to be optimized for us by specialist engineers who really understand quantum mechanics, but you don't have to learn quantum mechanics to begin applying the system. In fact, the When I meet people who work in finance and I tell them, um, you know, if you have a quantitative analyst in finance and they know how to prepare a covariance matrix, that's the instruction for a quantum computer, then their engineers know how to solve, like, map problems to a quantum computer like that, right? Many of us, it's a little bit less familiar. We've got to go through some learning, we've got to check out some of the community resources and look through some of the programming examples, but there are already engineers in fields for which there are classical problems that are familiar to our everyday world like traffic flow optimization and portfolio optimization, um, trying to detect patterns and images related to the machine learning, um, algorithms that Brianna was talking about, um, where they're already applicable. So, you know, the, the early adopters, the, the, the enterprises that have come to D wave early, they are, um, recognizing that there's this new computational resource that's emerging. And if they don't understand where in their, application space uh, it's going to be applicable Uh, like Liz was talking about they're going to get disrupted and they need their workforce to be able to adapt and that's at a a human level and at D-Wave we're trying to create the tools uh, that allow you to prepare for that to learn the programming skills find where it's going to be applicable and where it won't be applicable so that uh, when you're using quantum computing it's in the appropriate places Um, so it'll be exciting to see in these next few months and years as Brianna sort of showing by leading the example here as people begin picking up this technology and and just applying it in ways we hadn't thought of previously
0: well I want to throw it to the audience in just a few minutes so if you guys are like coming up with questions that's great but I'm going to throw it to the panel right now and as we see this technology that has the ability to you know compute things in a way that we've never experienced before should we be concerned about maybe what that means for redundancies being created in certain markets for maybe just the human workforce? How do we kind of like balance that uh, that responsibility that we have to humanity ourselves with this huge technological change that's going to happen? I'll throw it to anyone who that wants to tackle this one.
3: I think that, um, you know, I'm not an expert in world economics, but you know, all of us are having to learn new things all the time, develop new skills and adapt to new technologies that are emerging and find ways to incorporate them into our daily lives. And, you know, when we get into difficult situations in our economies where, you know, plants shut down and people are losing work, it's when we haven't really taken the appropriate steps to prepare our society, to prepare our workforce, to develop the new emerging skills, because there are going to be new jobs that are going to emerge. There are there are destruction, like the Creative Destruction Lab at the University of Toronto is solely focused on creating new startups that are thinking about how to apply quantum technologies um, into new industries. And they're going to need to hire people who have the skills uh, to program these systems. So, um, you know, the information is available. D-Wave sees it as part of their role to kind of provide that access uh, and to help people see the appropriate uh, combination between quantum technologies and classical technologies as they're solving problems yeah
2: indeed and i think corporate social responsibility is going to become more and more important and prevalent especially as we are seeing some governments step back many um, com, you know corporations are going to have to step forward, and a lot of companies that have this technology now are actually opening it up to to people to use for free to learn to learn those new skills to move forward and We really have to put pressure on our educational systems right to offer these opportunities to people and to kind of help them paint the path forward for you know what is their career going to be. I read something really interesting the other day that said in the future, most people are going to have five, six, seven, eight careers, not one, because as they sort of learn and do something, you know, something will come behind that and automate it. So the the traits that are going to be most important to teach people are things like flexibility and lifelong learning and curiosity and the, you know, kind of the excitement factor around all of that. Um, for me personally, working a sort of an 80, 90 hour work week, I'm kind of hoping that this leads to some leisure time. <laughs> so I'm good with a little disruption if I can, you know, have, have a few days on the beach.
1: Here yeah, now. I wanted to add on to that. <laughs> I really think that it's our responsibility right now to start learning about this technology and to really try to understand how it's going to be shaping our future in the next couple of decades. Because like, yeah, I agree, it's the government's responsibility as well. but Realistically, as citizens, I think we just need to understand what this technology can do and what it will be doing in the next couple of years. You mentioned Creative Destruction Lab. I was there for a couple of months um, for their technical sessions for quantum machine learning. And it's really insane that they're thinking of, okay, how do we get startups working on applying quantum computing and creating software for quantum computers now, even though this technology is like 10 years, 12, 12 years ahead of our time right now? And I think it's a really interesting idea and a really interesting mindset to go about technology in general because almost every single time there has been, every, almost every single time we've experienced some major technological shift, there has always been this period of people who are just like, whoa, what is like, actually happening? I don't even understand this technology. And right now, with the amount of online resources that we have, like I started learning about quantum computing um, like a year ago or so just using like IBM, IBM Q, which is Literally open to anybody who wants to learn about the technology, but it goes to show that we have the online resources to start learning about this technology right now, and it's really just our responsibility to do that and step up our game before we actually see quantum computing take a leading role in disrupting certain industries.
2: Well, I found it very interesting that you mentioned security earlier, because as soon as my friend Murray here lines up enough qubits, the security infrastructure as we know it is going to crumble. And so we really have to be thinking about that now. How do we step in front of that? If any of my fellow audience members remember Y2K, <laughs> this is going to be that on a much larger scale. So we really have to start that now and, uh, and kind of prepare for the, for the future, because it's, it's, it's kind of here now.
0: So we've got a packed house. I have to believe there's people out there with questions right now. Uh, we have our house monitor, or I should say, our room monitor here. If you have a question, raise your hand, and we'll bring the mic right to you here. we're uh, First uh, question in the uh, green sweater there.
4: So here's a question for panelists. Um, Do you envision in the future uh, that uh, quantum computing will be so widespread that would replace traditional computing, or will they coexist?
3: That's a great question. In fact, it was part of the discussion we had leading up here is that I think there's sort of two primary misconceptions about quantum computing that I would want to address, which is that one is that quantum computing is going to actually work with classical computers, not replace them. Uh, And if anything, it's going to uh, be sort of working side by side. And and the second misconception, which i touched on a little bit earlier, is that, you know, you don't need to know quantum mechanics to be able to program quantum computers. And um, the notion here, you know, when I was thinking about what Brianna was saying about running algorithms using a quantum algorithm at one period and then a classical computer at another, and then thinking about what Liz was mentioning about, you know, Fujitsu is trying to provide, you know, digital annealers and classical resources to help people approach the problems as well. You know, D-Wave has actually put out an open-source developer package around hybrid quantum-classical programs, so that the developers can actually take problems and split them up between classical and quantum computers, and actually race them against each other, or have them work on different parts of the problem, uh, because that's what you know Priyan is going to be doing in her future career is basically you know finding really innovative ways of combining the technologies together.
0: Uh- This might be a silly question, but that's what I'm paid to do, but I mean, do you imagine kind of a world existing where I'm essentially carrying like a quantum computer around in my pocket, much the way Mm -hmm. that I've got like a smartphone in my pocket, which would have been unimaginable, you know, 30 years ago with the kind of computing power that's stored in it right now.
2: It'll be in your brain.
0: Wow. You're not going to
2: need a device. (laughs) That's so old school.
0: Wow, okay. (laughs) I'm not going to be patient zero for the brain implant. <laughs> uh, another question? Yeah, thank you for the panelists. I was just wondering what's the energy requirement of quantum computers? Is that going to be much less than traditional computer? And you mentioned about supercooling, is that required now? And is it being done right now? Thank you.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the quantum computers that we built at D-Wave, um, They have a a cooling environment that creates the environment they need to do the calculations. So if you think about it, if you take the chips in your phone, their operating temperature is room temperature, and when you turn them on, they warm up. And in a quantum computer, their operating temperature is ten thousandths of a degree above absolute zero. So you have to spend energy to get that operating environment created, and that takes about 25 kilowatts of power. But then the chip itself is what's consuming a tenth of a billionth of a watt. So as we innovate new technology products and and create new chips, the base power consumption of the system remains flat because the chip's adding a negligible amount of of computational power consumption to that. Mm
1: -hmm. To add on to that, um, there's also different types of quantum computers. So D-Wave is working on a specific type of quantum computer, but Xanadu's system is a photonic system. And so... Different types of quantum computing also actually don't require the super cooling environment. So for a photonic system, you don't need to cool your chip down to a, a super, super cool temperature. So it's very dependent on what kind of quantum computer you're talking about. Thanks, Braylon. And digital annealing doesn't require
2: any sort of supercooling either, and that gives you quantum-like behaviors. So you can kind of, again, see that bridge between classical and multiple types of quantum. Um, But we do have to solve the energy problem regardless, right? How do you kind of create this computing power without consuming so many resources? So a lot of companies are focused on that part of the optimization chain right now.
3: Mark from Seattle. Uh, thank you very much. Excellent panel, um, uh, Brianna. You mentioned the impact of quantum computing on cryptography before. Um, I'm wondering about the impact on uh, blockchain technology specifically, but in general about encryption and privacy of quantum computing.
1: Yeah, um, a couple of months ago, I was like looking into this specifically about how hashing is going to be hashing on the blockchain is actually going to be a huge problem because quantum computers are good at solving these really complex math problems. And so right now, what we see. There's a couple of blockchain companies that are currently working on making their technology quantum safe. And so I think what we're gonna be seeing in the next couple of years is that um, new blockchain companies, they're gonna be thinking about how they can adapt their technology to the future existence of quantum computers. And so that's what I think will be the future trajectory of the entire blockchain industry. How do we make sure that this technology can, can be sustainable with the existence of a quantum computer?
0: Got a question in the back, and then I see another one in the front here. Uh, yep, so thanks a lot, guys. Um, to speak to that quote that was Asimov that said, the best technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thank you. <laughs> Often quoted to jobs, but it was Asimov. Um, so I want to know if quantum computing can scale the way that classical computing can, you know, scaling up and scaling out. Does it have that ability, or is it
3: inherently unable to uh, cluster its resources together? a great question. Um, So to be fair to the point that Brianna mentioned that once you have the idea of building a computer which is going to turn quantum mechanical effects into useful work for you, you can come up with different models for how you're going to do that and then different physical systems you would use to implement the, the model. So my expertise is in superconducting quantum computers mostly around the quantum annealing model Um, And I have also had experience with a second model of quantum computing, which is gate model. And at D-Wave, we switched models of building quantum computers to quantum annealing precisely so that we would get um, a faster growth in the technology development, so that we could get to problem problem solving in industry faster. So we actually do have a, a scaling trajectory. We've been sort of doubling the number of devices in our quantum computers every 18 months to two years since 2004. So it is possible to do that. It sort of speaks to the human ability to get uh, complex systems into integrated circuits. Uh, But that's not necessarily true for all quantum devices. There are a lot of quantum devices where some of the engineering design controls are so difficult uh, to put together. You don't get the benefits of uh, sort of like an error-corrected encoding system like you would with classical computing. Uh, And they've been scaling up their technology growth much more slowly. Um, So, The interesting thing is that the problem complexity that you're approaching with the resources that you have in quantum computing, they're growing exponentially with the scale. And that's where you have this potential for like a super exponential performance growth. Um, So, yeah, it'll be really exciting to see. I mean, we've largely just pointed to our track record in development, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what technologies emerge.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, we're really on the frontier of this particular technology right now. It will scale if we want it to, you know, people wondered if mainframes would scale and here we are today carrying them around in our pockets. So it, it absolutely will scale. It's just a matter of when and how.
0: Excellent, we have a question over here.
4: Thank you guys. Um, and <laughs> I would like to, uh, to hear all three of you's uh, vision of this, but uh, one of the things that um, I am particularly concerned or interested in would be the uh this cohabitation of classical and quantum so there is a need for us to be able to formulate problems and data into a format or language that is uh acceptable by a quantum computer so far i've seen i mean there's the a the bit of a grid model there's the the pentagram of the the uh, the, the experience uh ibmq and the other one is uh uh, Q-Sharp from Microsoft, so there's still a lot of uh, variation in there and different models. Where do you see this going? Will there be one uh, universal model or are we going to still continue to use different ways of uh, preparing and, uh, and and programming uh, the different technologies out there? That's a good
3: question. Do you want
2: me to? Oh, yeah, I can, I'm happy there. to launch in. So, I'm not super technical, so full disclosure, Um, but I'm going to kind of put on my philosophy hat. Again, I think it's going to be how we have to get much better at how we ask the questions, because, you know, as as we've talked about, you know, you sort of, um, you can set off a couple of quantum computing instances asking it the same question, and you may get variable outcomes. So, a lot of it is gonna to have to kind of harken back to the user saying, what problem specifically am I trying to solve? How do I ask this question? How do I pose this query to get to the outcome that I'm trying to, to, to create? And again, often doing it in classical and quantum at the same time, while this is in its infancy, to start to understand what the differences will be between the two. But if we kind of look at some of the technologies that are on the forefront right now, you know, where humans are trying to bend or edit reality around them, right? You've all heard about CRISPR and how we're gonna start to play around with people's genetics. Um, You know, we have to stop and think about how we're going to approach this technology, how we're gonna interact with it, and um, what potential goodness and craziness we can unleash. So that's my non-technical answer to your question.
0: Yeah, brain implants, I'm not patient serial. CRISPR, I'm not going to be screwing for that <laughs> just yet either. But uh, sorry, Marie. Well, I was going
3: to ask Brianna. I mean, you've been programming uh, quantum computers now. What, what is your perspective?
1: Yeah, so you asked whether there's going to be, like, one software for quantum computing. Is that correct? Yeah, so, one yeah, so I think this is going to be dependent on two things, really. So first of all, like, which company is going to reach the point of, like, this idea of quantum supremacy where, um, a, type, where a quantum computer will have a quantum advantage over some classical algorithms that we already have. So it'll be dependent on which company can actually achieve that landmark. It'll also be dependent on what kind of software are these companies offering. So for Xanadu specifically I know that their quantum programming software is integrated with like TensorFlow and other a bunch of other machine learning tools. And so specifically for like different, different types of tasks, I think people who are engineering the new quantum algorithms will want to Use different types of like packages, Python packages, and this will be very dependent on what application task are they looking at. So let's say that I'm working in like quantum machine learning, and if I want to specifically ma- be making quantum machine learning algorithms, then I'm going to be going for the company that is offering some type of quantum software that integrates with TensorFlow or integrates with like Keras or something. So this will be very dependent on okay, first of all, which company is going to reach this idea of quantum supremacy, and also. What specifically do I want to be doing within quantum computing? What application am I looking after?
0: Excellent. We have a question back here. Hi. Uh,
5: Brianne, I love the fact that you brought up the, uh, the example of a factory closing. as a big problem, a societal problem. Um, but then you mentioned that it was kind of up to government to, uh, to fix those types of uh, challenges. What I love about the talk that you guys are doing now is that you've talked about the way that people and society will interact with quantum computing. So it's obvious that you guys are thinking about it, but what is it that you guys and leaders in industry are doing today to help solve the problems that we will have tomorrow when you know, tomorrow's version of the factory closes? Um, I just, I'd like to know that industry is also working with government to come up with those solutions because industry is part of our society mm-hmm. and it seems that it's always the gap between government falling asleep and industry falling asleep that people fall into these cracks. So I'd like to know how what you guys are doing today to help for that situation tomorrow. Thank you.
3: Well, maybe, maybe I'll just make a quick comment. The, um, the, the mo- uh, D-Wave is a relatively small company. We have somewhere on the order of like 160 employees. And we're both building the quantum computers and creating the tools and then, you know, working with our customers to help them solve problems. So everything that we're doing, we're trying to focus on how can a small team Help have a big impact for a large group of folks so what we're trying to do is pull together um, you know well yeah pull together a community of users who can share in their experience and then compound their learning by leveraging off of each other's examples Uh, and also you know creating tools that are open source so that you know it's not really a mystery how the tools are working you can kind of dive in at any level of detail but also trying to focus on creating abstraction layers. You know, no one person is going to create like an entire full-stack quantum computing application. They're going to be building off of like components that other computer science uh, engineers will be developing, much like we do with compilers and classical compute. Uh, and the other thing to keep in mind is that quantum mechanics is like crazy weird i mean if the things i've been talking to you about haven't seemed weird uh you know there's that famous uh, quote from richard Feynman: uh, if you think you understand quantum mechanics you don't understand quantum mechanics <laughs> um but i have a, you know now you know having worked a little bit on machine learning and seen my kids grow you know we learn how the world works by interacting with it right and things are familiar to us if we get a chance to try them out so computer science for me was very intuitive as i grew up but for my father's generation definitely was not And so um, that's what's important about, you know, making quantum computer access available online, is that that's how people are going to learn, okay, well, what can this do for me? How different is this? You know, to take, I mean, I don't want to kill the magic, uh, as Asimov sort of created, but I think that also will uh, generally help us and help us prepare.
2: For sure. Um, I think sort of a little bit opposite to that, Fujitsu is a uh, 150,000-person company, sort of with global presence all over And um, we, you know, go back a lot to our corporate social sustainability foundation and we have various pillars where we look at what are we doing for the environment? What are we doing for our communities in which we are present? Um, We're looking at how we reskill our workforce. So as things like product manufacturing become kind of a thing of the past, a lot of, you know, we're getting out of product so much, Um, we're looking at how do we reskill our workforce into software and into, you know, services and things like that. And, you know, really trying to kind of care for our employees. Um, What's really interesting, I was talking to a a CEO the other day who was saying that she talked herself to like 150 CEOs this past year. And each one of them said that they wanted to hire a thousand new people with a certain, you know, skill set in sort of the agile DevOps space. And she's like, Where are they getting all these, you know, like, so we really have to get out of the mindset of, in order to move our company forward, we've got to hire from outside. No, no, your talent is right within your four walls. It's how do you identify that? How do you expose them to the technology? How do you create a path for them to show them where they fit in the company's future and into the communities that you're serving? And how can we make sure that we're not having terrible impacts on the environment and the things that we're working in? So, you know, um, companies that have an enormous amount of passion around this, um, I, again, I think are gonna step in to fill where some governments are maybe falling behind.
0: It's a great question, because I don't know if the person who asked it knew that, uh, literally the, the minister in charge of jobs is here in the room. So maybe that's, uh, policy <laughs> listening. So, uh, keep that in mind. We have time for one last question. Uh, can I throw it, uh, back to the audience, uh, just to wrap everything up? Here we go. Um,
2: so I, thank you for, uh, your insights, panelists. Um, I was curious about the current, Um, state of quantum computing and perhaps in the near future um, what do students and perhaps the next generation need to focus on in order to get quantum computing out in industry um, like widespread Um, is it mature enough to stay within industry or is
1: it required to still iterate within academia and if you could comment on that that would be great Yeah, um, I I can comment on that then I think It definitely has room for innovation within academia as well. Like right now, we see a lot of the companies that are working on quantum computing, they're publishing a lot of research papers, and all these research papers are based off either hardware or like quantum algorithms that they're trying to develop. And so even right now, the technology is rather like rudimentary where people are trying to really think about how can we create like better chips or how can we create more efficient algorithms that we can then run on quantum computers in the near future. And so... Um, in the next couple of years, we're going to be seeing the technology become more and more mature for industry. And we can already put, start thinking about like applications and new algorithms that will then branch off to applications. But there's a lot of room right now um, within academia for people to be working on the technology. And I think um, as a young person specifically, what people can start doing is just really start learning about it and start trying to read research papers, even if you don't have. Like a background on quantum mechanics, because even from reading like the abstract, you can get a decent understanding of what people are talking about. And from getting more famili- familiarity from what's actually happening on what's what's actually happening at like the Institute for Quantum Computing in Waterloo and a bunch of other like um, uh, academic academic spaces that are working on the technology, you can get a really good understanding of the fact that the technology is rudimentary and there's a lot of space for innovation right now.
0: Well, excellent. I think that wraps it up now, but I want to thank everybody for joining us here on the uh, uh, panel. Uh, can everybody just give an applause to these great experts here. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank
2: you.
0: So I thought that was a fascinating panel. I want to thank everyone for listening to that. And I also want to thank the experts for letting me pick their brains, much smarter people than me. So that was great. And that's it for our show today. We're going to be back tomorrow. For now, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts as well as Stitcher. We also encourage you to share with your friends and leave a review as it's going to help others find this podcast. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening.